You're very used to a type of politics because you've been a no, minister. I'm and sorry, so forth, I didn't. And your experience you once. shows that you okay. are being rude, and that's fairly typical, actually, uh, of the way that the pro-Europeans react. Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor, and you just heard a short clip of a feisty discussion you'll hear shortly with three outgoing British members of the European Parliament in their final days before the UK leaves the EU. But before we get to that, we have our podcast panel. Reem and Matt are off this week, but we have Annabel Dixon in London. Hello. And with me here in Brussels, our tech editor, Nick Vineker. Hi. And our Brussels politics reporter, Lily Beyer. Hi, everyone. Uh, let's start with a big topic of particular interest to Annabelle and Nick. That's Huawei, which has been uh, front and centre in both London and Brussels this week. Annabelle, why don't you just start by filling us in on the big decision the UK made and how it's gone down there? The UK government announced that it was going to allow Huawei to continue to supply telecoms networks, particularly the 5G network, um, which was what the decision was about, but was going to ban it from from core parts of the network, so the sort of most security sensitive bits. And um, I mean, the, the reaction in London has been quite interesting. I mean, the, the, the government is united on it, in inverted commas. Um, they're speaking with a collective voice. But actually, there's been a bit of a backlash from various Tory MPs who are pretty unhappy about the uh, idea. It might be the first sort of signs of rebellion that the honeymoon may be over for Boris Johnson, although he has such a large majority that it would take rather a lot of them to rebel for his plans to be thwarted. Right. And we should say, of course, that Huawei says uh, everything is uh, perfectly safe and uh, the allegations from the US that they basically would be giving uh, sensitive data to the Chinese government are unfounded. But this is uh, an issue that all European countries are having to grapple with at the moment. Nick, what is the EU saying and how does do you think the UK decision affects the, the picture across the EU? What's particularly interesting about the UK decision is that it seems to weigh uh, political and economic arguments against security ones. And quite clearly, they decided that the political and economic uh, interest of of rolling out 5G quickly, thanks to Huawei, uh, outweighed the security risk. I think that this immediately sends a signal to other European countries that are considering exactly the same dilemma, uh, namely Germany, where there's a hot, heated uh, discussion about 5G going on, where you have the same warnings from the security community. Today, a report about a so-called smoking gun provided about Huawei's supposed interactions with Chinese intelligence that the U.S. would have provided to, to the Germans. But what does the the UK sets up is uh, the UK's gone with Huawei. It's going to roll out 5G uh, quite quickly, and it sets up a form of competition with the Germans who are saying, well, if the UK have done it, we can't be left behind. Right, because uh, Angela Merkel has previously said that really the EU is going to be getting a competitor on its doorstep. Where's the European Commission in all this? Because uh, they've presented something called a toolbox, which I assume is not to build your own 5G network, but something uh, far more sophisticated. What's the message they're trying to get out to EU member states who ultimately have to make their own decisions on this? They've tried to thread the needle in um, a very delicate way. And they've gotten a bunch of national uh, cybersecurity experts to come together and 
give people an array of options, essentially. The commission has heated concerns about the risk. They've gotten the warnings from the U.S. too. And what they're putting forward is basically a series of options. They're identifying Huawei as a high-risk. No, they don't name Huawei, excuse me. They're identifying certain uh, foreign suppliers as, as being high-risk. They're inviting member countries to uh, take measures to mitigate those risks, and they're giving them the tools to do it. They're saying if a company has ties to a foreign government or if it owes uh, data or intelligence to a foreign security agency, then uh, then you can take measures to, to exclude them. But it's non-binding, and it gives member countries total latitude as to what to do. And what about on the whole transatlantic question, Annabelle? Mike Pompeo is arriving in London uh, just after this decision has been taken. Uh, Britain wants to have a very close relationship with the US, particularly post-Brexit. So what's the calculus there with regard to the US? I think the calculation has been that in the kind of grand scheme of things, particularly around the trade deal, which is obviously the big prize that they're looking for, Huawei is not going to be a big factor in that because there's so many other complications around a trade deal. I think Downing Street is sort of very cognizant of that. You know, there's Congress, there's, there's an election, there's hardball US trade negotiators. And in the grand scheme of things, they don't think this Huawei decision is going to particularly make a, make a big difference. And there's definitely, um, I, I speaking to, to some officials who seemed pretty upbeat that you know the fact that Pompeo is coming this week he's still coming you know that there's other countries that might have cancelled the visit after a decision like that Trump's actually been pretty quiet he's been busy with his Middle East plan Boris Johnson managed to have a call with him and had obviously managed to sort of pivot the conversation onto onto the Middle East quite successfully so there hasn't been the backlash that you might have thought there would have been Okay, well, we'll see how that plays out. Let's switch to the other uh, big topic in Brussels this week, or one of them. Uh, The news actually broke at the weekend that Charles Michel is going to convene a special European Council summit on the budget. Britain used to be front and centre of these uh, summits, of course, generally turning up and insisting it wasn't going to pay very much or... Uh, it was, of course, a big net contributor, but didn't want to pay any more and wanted to rebate. That's not going to be the case this time, as Britain will have left. Lily, uh, just sum up where things stand. Why did Charles Michel decide to, to call this summit now? So Charles Michel called this summit after a series of bilateral consultations between his team and the teams of all 27 member countries. The budget negotiation has been slowly going on for nearly two years now. But now we are getting to crunch time because the current budget runs out at the end of 2020 and the 27 leaders need to come to a unanimous agreement before going to the European Parliament for consent, which takes a while. And after that takes place, they also need to set up different budget programs and work on the details, uh, which is uh, quite a long process that could take months. So um, for a lot of member states, it does feel like this is the last opportunity to get a budget deal without getting big delays 
early next year. And these delays are not popular with voters who benefit from a lot of these programs, whether it be research funding, uh, regional development, or, or even uh, farming subsidies. So there is growing pressure in town. We can uh, feel it in the air when we talk to diplomats that the mood is changing. A few months ago, people were quite relaxed about the budget. Now they are taking it a lot more seriously. And this coming weekend, a group of countries, primarily from the South and the East, will have a meeting in Portugal to discuss how to push uh, their colleagues to safeguard funding for regional development, which they really care about. Right. And this is the so-called um, Friends of Cohesion, right? Cohesion funding is the, the Brussels name for a lot of this regional development money. So that's one block, if you like. Who are the other kind of camps or, or tribes here who, who are really pushing their line in the debate? So there's the Frugal Five. They are the most powerful bloc in this negotiation. Uh, this is a group that includes countries like Germany, which is the biggest net payer into the budget, and also countries like the Netherlands, which is incredibly reluctant to pay more post-Brexit. And what a lot of observers have been saying, people who've been through this negotiation before, is that Budget negotiations in the EU have always been quite difficult, but now without the UK, they will be even harder. So I'm seriously considering bringing a sleeping bag um, to the summit because there is a chance it could go on for three or four days. Right. The ominous thing in the um, invitation that Charles Michel sent was he said that the summit would begin on the 20th, right? And he didn't say when it would end. So uh, we are braced for a long... Annabelle, you're going to miss this. You're chuckling away there thinking I don't have to be part of all this stuff anymore. I know, I'm Uh, so (laughs) sad that I'm going to miss these European Council (laughs) all-nighters. I don't think London should completely forget about the EU budget because you may end up having a mini-negotiation after um, the big negotiation is over, and that is because the UK government has committed to trying to negotiate access to a bunch of popular programs like the Erasmus Student Exchange Program, like Horizon, which funds research, and a lot of British academics have been benefiting from that program. So budget may come back also on your radar, Annabelle. There you go. Maybe you can come for a little mini budget summit. You don't have to miss out altogether. Excellent. Reunion tour. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you're welcome anytime, as you know, Britain may be leaving the European Union, but it is not leaving Europe. Uh, And that brings us on to Brexit. Let's just round up uh, there uh, because we're going to hear uh, a very interesting, feisty uh, debate among three British MEPs shortly. But I wonder, this is Brexit week and and we've been talking about it for so long uh, that there's a danger, there's a bit of an anticlimax. But this is a a historic moment, uh, for better or for worse, depending on how you look at it. And I just I wonder how um, what Brexit means for uh, for each of you and the areas that you cover. Nick, just on the technology front, what do you think is uh, are the kind of big implications of Brexit for the for the areas that you oversee coverage of? There's a concern about Britain departing from the EU regulatory regime, particularly on on data protection. The UK has one of the best resourced and most influential data protection agencies uh, that is no longer, uh, at least as far as we know now, going to be part of the the GDPR system. And uh, the concern there is that the UK is going to loosen certain regulations, particularly eyeing a trade deal with the United States, and 
become a sort of El Dorado for tech companies uh, where they have a freer hand to do business. I mean, that's concern number one. And then there are things about, you know, investment. What kind of regulation or what kind of deregulating can they dream up to, to attract more uh, more investment? You know, like you cited Mrs. Merkel earlier, uh, there's definitely a question of economic rivalry. Mm, absolutely. Lily, you've touched on it a bit already, but these budget negotiations are framed by Brexit, right, to quite a large extent. Uh, they really are. It is a huge problem, especially for the eastern and southern countries, um, that the UK's contribution is no longer there because uh, we will most certainly see cuts uh, to some traditional programs like regional development and like agricultural subsidies simply because there is just not enough money to go around. But I should say that the shadow of the UK will still be present over these negotiations because the member states will be fighting over the future of rebates and that is a legacy of Margaret Thatcher. There we go. Annabelle, what is the mood in in London right now? Is there a kind of build-up to, of course, London voted Remain, so I guess that's part of the issue uh, that you you may not have, you know, millions of cheering Londoners out on the streets at the weekend or or on Friday night, but um, can you characterise the mood even within the Westminster bubble, you know, now that it's finally about to happen? Well, it has been an extraordinary anticlimax because, of course, last year we had all these sort of late night, long knife edge votes. And then it just sort of passed through Parliament with this huge majority. And even in the newspapers, it was just sort of a few paragraphs. You know, the Brexit bill has passed. And this is legislation that Theresa May failed three times to, to get through. I think there'll be a sort of flurry of excitement on... Friday, Nigel Farage is having a big party outside Parliament, although there was an amusing press release which, um, very un-Farage-esque, said, please be aware that Westminster says you can't bring booze, <laughs> so <laughs> might not be such a good party after all. <laughs> but, the, but the government is trying not to be too triumphant about it. Everyone I'm speaking to is saying, well, of course, you know, it's all about bringing the country together Okay, well, in the debate you're about to hear, you'll discover there's probably still some way to go in in bringing the country together. Uh, (laughs) But for the moment, uh, Annabelle, Lily, Nick, thanks very much. Thanks. Thank you. And now it's time to hear from three outgoing members of the European Parliament from the UK. Earlier this week, we sat down with the group in their final days in office. It's a lively discussion that gives a great flavour of the Brexit debate and the passions it still arouses. So first, let's let the three MEPs introduce themselves. Jude Curtin-Darling, Labour Party, North East of England. I'm Alex Phillips, the Green Party MEP for the South East region of England. Uh, I'm Anne Whittacombe, I'm the Brexit Party MEP for the South West uh, and Gibraltar. So perhaps I could just start by asking you all how you're feeling. This is the, these are the final days before Brexit. Alex, let's start with you. I'm really sad, to put it bluntly. You know, um, I worked in the European Parliament 12 years ago, got a taster for it as a stagiaire, loved it, saw how as a Green politician we can make such a tangible difference here because unlike Westminster, we can write the laws and they can affect 28 different countries and millions of people. So I think it's a great, great loss on very many levels. Jude? I would agree on the sadness It feels quite a profound feeling, actually. I mean, I think many of us who've been MEPs for 
a longer period and particularly if elected before we went into the referendum. We've seen the whole story right, right through, um, close up if you like. I think it's a kind of profound sadness because we were convinced Europeans at the beginning. So seeing our country decide to um, separate itself from its closest neighbours is it kind of hits right at your core. But now, in the last few days, that's mixed, obviously, with the kind of practical reality of closing offices in Brussels, closing offices in the northeast, trying to get everything wrapped up and ensure that, ironically, it's an orderly Brexit for British MEPs, which it's unlikely to be that orderly for our country in the end. And I imagine you feel quite different. Uh, totally different, yes. I mean, I'm absolutely rejoicing. Now, I don't say that I haven't got some qualms about the terms of the withdrawal agreement. Uh, I obviously have. But nevertheless, I'm delighted that Brexit is finally to be effected, you know, after three and a half years of dithering about. Uh, we're finally going. You know, Saturday will be the first day of British independence for 40-odd years. And, of course, I'm old enough to remember the original referendum when I actually voted in because then the vision was completely different. We were going to be a loose alliance of sovereign states and a little trading agreement with a little bit of political cooperation. Very noble, but it didn't turn out that way. So I'm very, very glad we're going. You've obviously been an MEP for a fairly short period of time. But do you feel any kind of sadness about leaving this place? Is there anything you've enjoyed about being an MEP? Well, I certainly don't feel sad about leaving Brussels. Uh, I... I did like Strasbourg. I liked it as a city. I stayed in a lovely little hotel there, but I didn't like the institution. So, no, there's no sadness uh, about leaving. I do understand why other people feel sad, and it would be very rude and unkind to say, oh, you shouldn't. I I do understand why they do, but I can't share that sadness. Alex, can you have a, can you persuade Anne, or no. what would you say? Yeah. What would you say to <laughs> her in response try, to that? <laughs> in terms of the institute, it's interesting that even the institution you haven't liked, because some people who come from national parliaments often say oh. it's more collegial here. Mm. People have to work together, build coalitions. Oh, I mean, let me tell you one reason why I hate it. I mean, you know, we're supposed to be a parliament, and yet we can't propose law. Now, at least at home, you know, in the Westminster Parliament, any individual MP can propose law. You don't just have to vote on uh, what the Cabinet says. So uh, I do feel very, very strongly that there are things we can't do here that we could do at home. Uh, yes, you do strike alliances with people from other countries and in other groups. But uh, to me, that is not a substitute for the complete loss of independence. And I do know what I'm talking about because I was a minister for seven years in the British government and that was when I finally became convinced, I mean really convinced on almost a day-to-day basis, that we were no longer in charge of our own affairs. Uh, and that was when I, my views on, on Europe really took a, a much harder shape. Jude, you were shaking your head for a bit of that. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, with all respect, that was very, very ignorant of actually the powers of the European Parliament. Mm, MEPs can have an enormous impact on legislation. In fact, there is a right of initiative. I've seen it used several times in the European Parliament where 
there's been a collective uh, decision that there has to be action in a certain area. And MEPs have set the agenda, also proposing legislation. This is a myth which continues to kind of circulate in Britain, which actually isn't legally sound in Brussels. Now, it's not being used very often. And von der Leyen, as a commission president, has said that she wants to strengthen that right of initiative. I think that's a great thing because it will increase... Uh, the role of the European Parliament. And the other point, and I would just really like this to be clear, is that we're not leaving a decision-making table and going to take care of our own affairs. We are moving from being a decision-maker to becoming uh, basically a rule-taker because we will be so influenced by the decisions here. And I'll let you come back on that, then Alex can have the next yes, rate indeed. of I response. Mean, the giveaway, of course, was when Jude said, well, it doesn't happen very often. I mean, when she was talking about, you know, members of the European Parliament. Well, you said we don't have it. Hang on. But, but you said it doesn't happen very often. Now, you know, in Westminster, it happens every day. I mean, it's taken for granted that this is a power uh, that an MP has. And you don't have to have an input or an impact or get together or do this or that. You, you Only can, if you're in what, cabinet, really. Yeah, no, not Only at all. Only if you're 20, a 20 MP doesn't have, have that power, power at all. Especially if you're in opposition. Yeah. And that's the difference. The difference is the type of politics, I think. Um, you know, so I didn't interrupt either of you once. Not once you're did very, I interrupt You're very used you. to a type of politics because you've been a no, minister I'm and sorry, so forth, I didn't and interrupt either of you once. Shows that. You okay. are being rude. Well, let... and, that of, and that's fairly typical, actually, uh, of the way that the pro-Europeans react. As I say, I didn't once interrupt you. I just kept quiet, even when you were saying what I didn't agree with. Uh, and I think it's a pity that we can't discuss things that way. However, what I can say is this. I was seven years a minister. Mm. And when we proposed to do things, unless it was compatible with EU law and it had to be certified as such, we couldn't do it. If the EU passed a directive, we had to implement it. Uh, so the idea that we control our own affairs is a joke. And it was brought home to me, as I say, on an almost daily basis. So I feel very strongly indeed that what we are regaining on the 31st is that ability to make our own laws. And the idea that we're going to be a rule taker from Brussels, well, that may be Jude's vision, but I don't think it's Boris's vision. At least I sincerely and dearly hope it's not Boris's vision. Well, I, I guess the question is it may not be his vision, but the question would be whether it that becomes reality or not, and we will find out. Alex, do you want to respond? Well, yeah, I mean, I think what you were talking about earlier about the, the way that politics is done here, and Jude's outlined it very well, is that it is a very collaborative type of politics. Um, and we see that from the way the European Parliament's all set up, how we're sitting, to us working together very constructively to propose sometimes legislation from the Parliament. GDPR, for example, a good example of that. Right, the data privacy That's regulation. right. That came from a Green MEP, actually, and their suggestion, and it was taken up by the Commission and implemented across all member states. Um, I think it's a great sadness that Anne sees this uh, these institutions and the people and the British people who are working in these institutions as different as them, as not us. We are British people working here with others in an exciting collaborative environment where you've got different cultures, different languages, different perspectives. And I think from what I can hear Anne saying is that her own experience as a minister has been very different from that. But I think that 
in politics, it's much better not to have sort of a cabinet adversarial, this is what we're going to do type of politics. If we turn now to the future, I wonder if you could just outline each of you what your plans are personally now, what you plan to do next, and how you envisage uh, Britain's relations with Europe and maybe even relations within Britain, because we can see from this discussion uh, you know, it's been a very polarised debate in recent uh, times in the UK over this issue. So, Anne, I'll start with you this time. Well, my personal plan is to go back to doing what I was doing before I was frustrated into deciding on a return to politics. And I, of course, had been retired from Westminster for nine years uh, before I came back in. I was doing interesting things. I was doing pantomime, by which I mean real pantomime, not political <laughs> pantomime. Uh, I was doing uh, numerous television shows. Uh, I was writing. I write a column for the Daily Express every week. Uh, I was uh, walking on Dartmoor, where I've retired. Uh, and I intend to pick up the threads of that life uh, when uh, all this is over. As far as the future uh, in terms of Britain goes, I foresee a very, very exciting future. I foresee good trade deals. I foresee a good economy. And I would not be at all surprised if in a few years' time other countries follow our example and leave. And what about relations within the UK? One of the reasons why there has been such polarisation, and there has been. I mean, I've described it as an unarmed civil war with families divided and friends divided, let alone institutions. Uh, so it has been a seriously divisive time. But one of the reasons for that has been the enormous delay, the scent somehow uh, on the part of the Remainers that maybe it wasn't over after all, and so therefore something could be done. And so therefore the tensions uh, have been caused by that delay dithering and above all the uncertainty. Now that the future is certain, that is then a time when we can say, right, now this is done now, we're at this point, Let's see how we can go forward together. You can't do that when you don't know what the forward is. Jude? So I will end up one of those Brits who will be left on this side of the channel post-Brexit. My husband's Belgian. And uh, we had to have a difficult conversation about where our future lies. And I think like many EU nationals um, from the other 27, he doesn't feel that the UK is a particularly welcoming place for EU nationals at the moment. So that was a hard discussion because I'm very proud of where I come from. And I never, ever had to choose before. I'm of a generation who were born as members of this European project. We were, I was born in 1977. We were already members and mm -hmm. my life experience has been one of being able to uh, live, study, work in another country and to benefit from the rights which come with European membership. And the Brexit referendum, like for many people of my generation, has forced us to actually choose. And that's very, very difficult in terms of a personal choice, and it's affected millions of people. So I think there has to be now a process of bringing ourselves back together as a country, because otherwise I think we're going to fragment. I think the votes in the Scottish Parliament, the Welsh Assembly, Northern Irish Assembly, against the withdrawal agreement, and the way that they have been fully disregarded by the government is a really dangerous step. You don't reunite a country by ignoring its composite parts. For my part, I will be doing everything to make sure that 
the relationships and the bridges are there for continuing dialogue between the UK and the rest of the EU. Because whatever happens in the future in the UK, these are our closest neighbours. And we need to ensure that there is constructive dialogue and space for, for people to meet so that we don't end up in a kind of dystopian future. Thanks. Alex? Um, I'm going to continue as Mayor of Brighton and Hove, which I've been doing alongside being an MEP. Um, so I've got about four months left of that mandate. So I'm looking forward to focusing all of my energies on that. Continuing my work as a local councillor and, um, and spending more time with my husband and um, little boy. But longer term, I really want to get involved in kicking the Tories out. I think what we'll see now is a, a massive race to the bottom on standards, whether they be environmental standards or workers' rights. And that will affect very, very many people's lives in an abysmal way. And it will be a few elite people who will benefit from Brexit. And that's always been the case. You know, you both mentioned no deal. No deal is actually still on the table. And we okay. could end up without a deal at the end of this year. Now, that's a, a likelihood that could happen. And we know from the Yellow Hammer doc document of last year how that's going to affect people in terms of um, UK lorries not being able to pass customs in France. 85% of UK lorries are not ready for that. Um, price rises, medical shortages. This will affect mainly the poorest and the most vulnerable in our society. And I want to, to make a personal pledge and role into working with the other parties to kick the Tories out. I mean, Anne is shaking her head. I think we have to wrap <laughs> things up, so we will, we will note that Anne uh, dissents from that view. I will just also, I Project think... Project fear, yellow hammer <laughs> all over again. Yeah, yep. I guess this is, I mean, I guess what I take from this discussion is in terms of, of bridgings being built and bringing the country back together, we seem to have a way to go. Let me just ask you, uh, finally... Theresa May, one of her catchphrases was Brexit means Brexit. So <laughs> Brexit is happening on Friday. In one word, what does Brexit mean for you? Disaster. Free country. A shambles. <laughs> okay. We'll I was leave. the only one who talked about Okay, I think we got, we got a sense of everyone, even if everyone didn't quite stick to one word. Pretty close. Oh, uh, but, yeah. uh, freedom then. Freedom instead of free country. Okay. And uh, shambles. Okay, <laughs> done. Okay, thank you very much uh, for your time. I do appreciate you coming together. A busy week when there's lots to do. And mm. um, thank you very much to all three of you for your time. Pleasure. Thank, thank you. you for having us. Thank you. That's all we have time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And share it with your friends and colleagues. You can also email us with your feedback at podcast at politico.eu. Thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez. This is our last episode before Britain leaves the European Union. Whether that's a cause of sadness or celebration will depend on your point of view, but we'll leave you with the sound of members of the European Parliament bidding farewell to the UK by singing Auld Lang Syne after the Brexit deal was passed on Wednesday. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks for listening.